This Dharma talk was recorded at Prairie Mountain Zen Center in Longmont, Colorado. Good morning, Nobu Sangha. Uh, how many people had heard of the Vimala Kirti Sutra? Not too many. It's one of perhaps of a dozen or so Mahayana literature sutras that were written in the centuries around the beginning of the common era. There are no known authors of these sutras. There is a, what I call a myth, the story that they are a record of the historical Buddha's teachings at the later part of his life, but they were too radical for the times and were kept by dragons under the sea until the time was right. And then Nargarjuna uh, somehow went under the sea, uh, found them, and they were published. You know, we have the writings of Nargarjuna from that same period, and his writings are extremely philosophical, extremely logical. Uh, they don't have much to do with literary excess at all. Although you could say the philosophy the teachings in the sutras, and which are very extravagant. Uh, a professor calls the Mahayana teachings like a rock concert. And the rather dry philosophy, logical philosophy of Nagarjuna, they're, they're similar teachings at least. But I've, I've been shocked that there are modern Buddhist thinkers who also think that these sutras were spoken by the historical Buddha, in my somewhat amateur opinion. Uh, I believe the literature was created uh, and written during the common era. I'm currently studying a Vimalakirti Sutra with a college professor um, at Lehigh University. Dr. Annabella Pitkin. Uh, she says it's hard to know what order the Mahayana sutras are written in because every time there's a new archaeological dig in Pakistan or Afghanistan, they make discoveries that change their understanding about the age of these sutras. In my kind of limited study of Buddhism, when I studied the Tripadika, the original oral tradition of Buddha, I find many of the teachings that I were taught were like, these are Mahayana teachings. I'm like, oh, wow, they're right here and what the Buddha originally said. Um, and then once again, in my amateur opinion, I believe the Maha movement uh, and identity as Mahayanists arose in reaction to which teachings of the Buddha were being emphasized at the time and how Buddhism had come to culturally express itself and exist at that time. Dr. Pitkin keeps pointing out that the Maha movement didn't spring out like in isolation, like in a different country, that traditional Buddhists and the new Mahayana Buddhists were living and practicing side by side she believes as these were developed. So once again, based on the study I have done, the impression I have is the Mahayana movement was to correct 
some of the following views and practices. You know, I wasn't there uh, 2,000 years ago, but uh, the culture at that time felt only monks and nuns could have advanced realization. Laypersons needed to be reborn through the good karma of merit. And then they could practice as monks and nuns. Also that monks were more advanced and superior than nuns. And then Buddhism relied on the logic of certain Buddhist teachings, you know, the, the um, Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, uh, very many Buddhist teachings had become codified, codified, but I believe they're, you know, they became very left-brain, if you will. Uh, not so much honoring intuition or heart, not so much honoring non, the non-dualistic nature of the world, but a very, you know, straightforward logic. This is the teaching. You know, there's something wonderful about that, but I think I think reality is beyond our words and our logical left brain. I also got the impression that the Buddhism at that time had perhaps become kind of very stingy, like a moralistic purity was the um, spirit of Buddhism. I mean, human culture can state wonderful teachings about generosity and kindness, uh, but you know, I'm always saying humans are hypocrites. You're, you're teaching your religion can be deeply promoting generosity and kindness. And at the same time, your attitude, your culture's attitude may not be so generous and kind. So the Vimalakirti Sutra is seen as a very strong statement of the Mahayana views, uh, kind of a clarion call, like a trumpet just proclaiming some of these Mahayana views that lay people, persons can attain enlightenment, that gender is not such a big deal, that a very limited dualistic view of human thought and behavior, there, we need to go beyond that. Not in a way that denies the value of discipline, simplicity, or the original teachings, but the one that creates a very open way which is more in line with the way things are. It does not hold to extreme perfection, stinginess, or a limited way of thinking. I'm going to pick certain parts of the sutra for us. I get halfway through the sutra today. First chapter is called The Purification of the Buddha Field. Thus have I heard at one time the Lord Buddha was in residence in the garden of Amrapali in the city of Vasali, attended by a great gathering of bhikkhus. Bhikkhus are, are monks. There were 8,000, all saints. They were free from impurities and afflictions. They had all attained self-mastery. Their minds were entirely liberated by perfect knowledge. They were calm and dignified like royal elephants. They had accomplished their work, done what they had to do, cast off their burdens and attained their goals and totally destroyed the bonds of existence. 
They all had attained the utmost perfection of every form of mind control. Uh, so we start, like the traditional uh, sutras and the Tripadaka start laying out the scene of where the Buddha is and who's around him. Um, so that this starts in that very traditional way. But usually in the earlier Buddhist sutras, there's maybe a reasonable amount of monks, <laughs> maybe 300 monks, but then it goes into like spiritual, you know, like nymphs and wood elves and stuff like that. But um, so, so far we have the uh, 8,000 monks. Of bodhisattvas, there were 32,000 great spiritual heroes who were universally acclaimed. They were dedicated through the penetrating activity of their great super-knowledges and were sustained by the grace of the Buddha. Guardians of the city of Dharma, they upheld the true doctrine. And their great teachings resounded like the lion's roar throughout the Ten Directions. Without having to be asked, they were the natural spiritual benefactors of all living beings. They maintained unbroken the succession of the three jewels, conquering devils and foes and overwhelming all critics. This goes on for another page, but I'll just say a little more. Um, they were expert in the way of the Dharma, which is straight, peaceful, gentle, hard to see, and difficult to realize. They were inexhaustible minds of limitless virtue. They glorified innumerable Buddha fields with the splendor of these virtues. They conferred great benefit when seen, heard, or even approached. If one were to extol them for innumerable hundreds of thousands of myriads of eons, one could still not exhaust their mighty flood of virtues. So, excuse me, this might be a little acquired humor here, but so this is a pretty experiential teaching. It goes on and on, and it kind of tries to, it's very dense, but there is so much virtue. It's, and then it talks about limitless virtue, and then it kind of recreates limitless virtue by having you read very long passages. <laughs> no, I had no idea there were that many words in the English language that discussed, you know, beneficial things, virtuous things. Um, but, you know, reading this, you might say, this is boring, <laughs> or, or this is stupid, <laughs> or you might have different reactions depending on what time of day it is, you know? It's, um, I've never seen literature like this. And when I compare this, which is like nothing but virtue and goodness and what the wonderful qualities, when I compare that to television, <laughs> Netflix, movies, um, and probably, you know, you've experienced these shows that seem to be almost nothing but violence and killing. They're like, and they're popular. I like, it's bizarre. Um, so 
So that's bizarre, but that's pretty accepted in our culture. I won't say the names of certain shows, but it's like, oh my God, there's one. I do a little better in the shows where the violence is kept to like one or two seconds, you know, when it goes on and on. Anyway, you know, this is so much the opposite of that. So then the, uh, the Lord Buddha begins to teach, but then in the local area, there's a Lachabi from the town, Bodhisattva Ratnakara, and he has 500 Lachabi youths with him. They're each holding a precious parasol to give to the Buddha. So we're back down to uh, about 500 people pretty big number. Um, they bowed at the Buddha's feet, circumambulating him clockwise seven times, and laid down their precious parasols. So that's also from the traditional uh, Buddhist sutras, uh, approaching the Buddha from the side, uh, circumambulating him. And then uh, the young Lachavi Ratnakara knelt with his right knee on the ground, raised his hands, palm pressed together in salute to the Buddha and praised the Buddha with the following hymn. I'll just read a few stanzas. Pure are your eyes, broad and beautiful, like the petals of a blue lotus. Pure is your thought, having discovered the supreme transcendence of all trances. Immeasurable is the ocean of your virtues, the accumulation of your good deeds, you affirm the path of peace, O oh, great ascetic, obeisance to you. Those who are well disciplined by your precious dharma are free of vain imaginings and always deeply peaceful. Supreme Doctor, you put an end to birth, decay, sickness, and death. Immeasurable ocean of virtue, obeisance to you. Like Mount Sumeru, you are unmoved by honor or scorn. You love moral beings and immoral beings equally. Poised in equanimity, your mind is like the sky. Who would not honor such a precious jewel of a being? So within this, you know, I read about 10% of the stances. Uh, within that, there are all these like little hints at these important teachings you are free of vain imaginings. <laughs> well, it's our Buddhist mission, part of our Buddhist mission to be free of vain imaginings. Um, you are unmoved by honor and scorn, you know, well, that's one thing we're trying to uh, see if we can uh, not be so tossed around by either honor or criticism. Uh, you love immoral beings equally, well, that's, that's a tall order. So within all this long praising, there's, there's lots of important little teachings. Uh, so when um, uh, Kanegar Roshi lectured on the Vimala Kirti Sutra before I arrived to meet him, but uh, he gave about 50 one-hour lectures over the course of two years. So it's, it's how dense this is. And then later on, I did hear his, over two years, he gave about 50 one-hour lectures on the Lotus Sutra. So 
Uh, that's another way to study these sutras. Then the, uh, the group of young students ask the Buddha, please explain what is the Bodhisattva's purification of the Buddha field? And a couple of excerpts, Buddha said, Noble sons, a Buddha field of a Bodhisattva is a field of living beings. So it, it may not sound profound, but it's one of the highlights. <laughs> a field of living beings, yeah. That's what we're interested in. We're interested in living beings. A Buddha field of bodhisattvas spring from the aims of living beings. So then this is another setup for teaching. Um, Buddha field is a field of high resolve, a field of virtuous application, a field of generosity. I'm just picking out the uh, subject lines of each paragraph. They're short paragraphs, but I'm skipping a lot. I'm just touching on the subjects. A field of morality. And it goes on and on. <laughs> and once again, even a small phrase within some of these sentences are like a powerful teaching. Uh, oh, and then many of the teachings are in here. So generality, morality, tolerance, effort, those are the six uh, paramitas. And then it covers the four immeasurables, uh, love, compassion, joy, and impartiality. And so there's many of the standard Buddhist teachings that are, are embedded in here. And then the end of every chapter ends with a um, happily ever after paragraph. Uh, thereby 32,000 living beings purified their immaculate undistorted Dharma eye in regard to all things. The 8,000 bhikkhus were liberated from their mental defilements, attaining the state of non-grasping. The 84,000 living beings were devoted to the grandeur of the Buddha field, having understood that all things are by nature but magical creations, all conceived in their own minds the spirit of unexcelled, total, perfect enlightenment. So, one thing that's up here with all these innumerable beings, and then throughout the sutra, he really messes with time, huge amounts of time, which we already covered, huge amounts of time, and they, they mess with the sutra and the Mahayanas with space, you know, giant amounts of space fitting on in a small place. Uh, it turns our concept of space, time, upside down. What's, What's going on? Well, one thing that's going on for me, I think, is I'm amazed how petty I am, how petty humans are in terms of time, you know? You're late, uh, the waitress is taking too long. Space, people get totally freaked out about the space inside a dishwasher, you know? Like, it's being loaded wrong, you know? It's just, uh, you know, then Buddhists argue about how to bow and humans, you know, you're wearing the wrong kind of clothes. That's the other gang. I'm going to kill you. Humans are just so petty and uptight about the smallest things. <laughs> and so to me, studying this teaching is just like just expansive in terms of 
uh, time and space, and you might, that might influence perhaps our pettiness. So I'll just cover a little bit of the next chapter, which introduces our hero. Uh, called Inconceivable Skill and Liberative Technique. At that time, there lived in the great city of Vasali, a certain Lachavi from Malakirti by name. Having served the ancient Buddhas, he had generated the roots of virtue by honoring them and making offerings to them. He had attained tolerance as well as eloquence. Having integrated his realization with skill and liberative techniques, he was expert in knowing the thoughts and actions of living beings, knowing the strength and weakness of their faculties and being gifted with unrivaled eloquence, he taught the Dharma appropriately to each. His wealth was inexhaustible for the purpose of sustaining the poor and the helpless. So he was very wealthy, but he gave his money to the poor and helpless. He wore the white clothes of the layman, yet lived impeccably like a religious devotee. He made his appearance at the field of sports and in the casinos, but his aim was always to mature those people who were attached to games and gambling. Okay. Uh, he was honored as the landlord among landlords because he renounced the aggressiveness of ownership. I don't know what that means, but this guy, you know, he's rich, he had a lot of property, he rented it out, he was a landlord. But he also renounced the aggressiveness of ownership. He was honored as the official among officials because he regulated the functions of government according to the Dharma. He was compatible with ordinary people because he appreciated the excellence of ordinary merits. So that's about 10% of the page describing how wonderful he is. At that time, out of this very skill and liberative technique, Vermelakirti manifested himself as sick. To inquire after his health, the king officials and lords, the youths and aristocrats, the householders, the businessmen, the townsfolk, the country folk, and thousands of other living beings came forth from the great city of Vasali to call and called upon him. When they arrived, Vermelakirti taught them the Dharma. So then he goes on and kind of gives a traditional Buddhist teaching of how undependable the body is. But then he goes on and says, well, if you're practicing Dharma, it's a Dharma body and it's full of great, great things. The end of chapter two, uh, I'll just do the beginning of chapter three. Then the, the Chavi Pramilakarti thought to himself, I am sick, lying on my bed in pain, yet the Tathagata, the saint, the perfectly accomplished Buddha, does not consider me or take pity on me and sends no one to inquire after my illness. <laughs> He's showing a little bit of a sign here, like as if tens of thousands of people visiting him weren't enough. He's like, oh, where's the Buddha, you know? <laughs> this is actually humorous, but I take a little study. Um, but the Lord, the Buddha, knew this thought in the mind of Vermakirti and said to the venerable Shariputra, Shariputra, go to inquire after the illness of the Lichavi Vermakirti. Uh, so yeah, I'm gonna read a little more here. Um, 
Thus, having been addressed, the Venerable Sariputra answered the Buddha, Lord, I am indeed reluctant to go. Ask the Lavachi Vilmakirti about his illness. Why? I remember one day I was sitting at the foot of a tree in a forest absorbed in contemplation. And the Lachavi Vermilakirti came to the foot of the tree and said to me, Reverend Sariputra, that is not the way to absorb yourself in contemplation. You should absorb yourself in contemplation so that neither body nor mind appear anywhere in the triple world. You should absorb yourself in contemplation in such a way that you manifest the nature of an ordinary person without abandoning your cultivated spiritual nature. So this goes on, this one's pretty short, but uh, so there, there's all these teachings in here. Vermeer Kirti maybe at this point sounds a little bit like a jerk, you know, this monk's meditating, he goes up and tells him, yeah, you're doing it all wrong. But this one sentence, you should absorb yourself in contemplation in such a way that you can manifest the nature of an ordinary person. And at the same time, don't forsake cessation. So cessation would be like an advanced spiritual state. So the whole sutra is full of, you know, we end up calling it the relative and the absolute. The whole sutra is full of simultaneously, just the way, you know, Vermeerakirti could simultaneously be a wealthy landlord and be totally uh, generous. You know, the way you can practice purity but not be hung up on perfection. Um, the whole sutra is really involved with, you know, we might say this is like you can have your cake and eat it too, because we're very much, well, you know, it's either one or the other. It's like the whole sutra is, explores non-dualism non very deeply. So this goes on, there's a, Nine more, there's a total of 10 of the Buddhist's best monks. Now, Theravadans get upset. Uh, there's actually a woman in our class that got upset. In Theravadan Buddhism, these monks are considered like the best. And they're kind of being set up here as, as foils uh, for Vermeerlikirti to give a teaching that they barely understand. At the end of each of them, they say, um, or they're just stunned. They're silent. <laughs> and then they say to the Buddha, That's, I don't want to go talk to him. You know, <laughs> he's too intimidating. So there's the story. So each of the stories within the stories might have more of a plot and more characters, but they're all, you know, just the teaching just flows kind of like a fire hose. I said in our class, I said, some of this reminds me of um, either soccer or basketball where the monks uh, pass the ball to Vermeerly Kirti and Vermeerly Kirti scores. And uh, go, to, go team Buddha. Uh, in my class on Zoom, there's about five men, 15 women, and some of the men smiled at my analogy at the other. Some of the women said, the professor said, I, I don't know anything about sports. But anyhow, this is all Team Buddha. So I, uh, I 
I'm not going to put you through eternity. I'm going to uh, stop here. You've been listening to a Dharma Talk from Prairie Mountain Zen Center in Longmont, Colorado. To learn more about us or to make a donation, visit us at prairiemountain.org.